Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello. And welcome to the Bibliotech, the podcast that sails through the earth seas of films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I have been waiting for this one. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Jake, you've mentioned straight up top that you've been waiting for this one for a while. Yeah, I certainly have. Uh, I know for for my own protection, as any leader should, you uh, kind of protected me from this film, maybe, uh, and the the lesser in the Ghibli canon. We we started our series strong with the the heavy hitters, and I think you were kind of securing my reaction and my affection. It was a it was a ploy, and I've cottoned onto it now. <laughs> um, and you got me in with those films that you knew I'd like. Uh, and and I saw down the line that there was this this curiosity, this one that uh, apparently no one likes. And along the way, whilst I have obviously loved a lot of the films that we've watched, that has only piqued my uh, curiosity for this one even mm-hmm. further. So we should say what film this is. This is Tales from Earthsea, the directorial debut of Goro Miyazaki, son of. Heo Miyazaki, who we've spoken about so many times throughout all yeah. these episodes, Jake. So you say that you've heard word mm. of this film's reputation it, that it's but the bad one. Or? Yeah. So that that's really it. It's like, oh, that's it. It's like the problem child. In a lot of ways, this is <laughs> around the problem child. Um, and I just I had to know what it was about. Even the poster has this feeling of kind of being the darker one that's mm-hmm. uh, misunderstood in a way. Um, and then I wasn't sure whether it was uh, cool to then say, oh, actually, Tales from Earthsea is the best one. Not that I won't be saying that. <laughs> um, and I, so I wasn't quite sure whether, it, whether this was actually bad or whether it was just one that like, the really diehards want to say is bad. And so whereas a lot of the other stuff we've had, I kind of knew the truth of the acclaim kind of going into it already and it's not often that we've really bucked the trend uh, and this I wasn't I really was unsure as to what to make of it this is our chance to be the Ghibli contrarians perhaps yeah yeah I don't think we, we haven't we're not known for our heated takes <laughs> I don't think I don't think our, our podcast is our one. takes are nicely tepid yes exactly yeah room we're, temperature we're like three hours worth of thermos of heat oh good yes exactly well 
With this film, you mentioned it has quite a reputation. We're going to have a maybe a potentially longer history and context section than That's usual. Right. I, I'm absolutely fascinated to see how this film came about. <laughs> but it does mean we dive quite deep into this film quite quickly and behind the scenes, and then we'll have your review afterwards. So as always, if you want to see this film with as little expectations and spoilers as possible, listeners, we'd recommend you go and watch it yourself and then come back to the podcast afterwards because we like to go deep, don't we? We certainly do. <laughs> deep into the Earth Sea. A strange force is upsetting the natural balance of the world of Earthsea. Dragons are spotted fighting in the skies above the ocean, and the socio-political fabric that holds society together is fraying. Prince Aaron goes into exile after murdering his father, the King of Enland, and stealing his mythical sword. He eventually joins up with the Archmage Sparrowhawk, and as they venture through the imperiled world, they hear word of Lord Cobb, a powerful wizard who is set to exploit this imbalance to find the secret to eternal life. Okay, Michael, I've got to know how this one came about because I know it's got this reputation and from the synopsis, it doesn't sound a world away from plots that we've read out on this show before. Mm. So this is going to be quite big and baggy and multifaceted as a context, but let's start with the Tales from Earthsea books. They're written by Ursula K. Le Guin from 1968 onwards. There's a series of several novels and short story collections that she, con- you know, she, she continues writing right up until her death last year. In some quarters, specifically in Japan, it's seen as the third of three great fantasy series of the 21st century alongside C.S. Lewis's Narnia and Tolkien's Middle-earth books. So the reputation of the books is very high, very strong, especially in Japan. And that's true for Hayao Miyazaki, who you know, in his younger life read these books and took great inspiration from them early in his career. He even tries to secure the rights in the early 80s to turn the books into a film around the time that he's thinking of making his feature debut and striking out on his own. But Ursula Le Guin at that time closely guarded those rights and wouldn't grant them to him. So instead, what he did was he seeded much of the inspiration and influence that he took from these books across all of his films. So from Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind and Castle in the Sky onwards, and even to Princess Monoki and other films we discussed, there are elements of Earthsea all the way there. And Miyazaki, I think, is on record. I can't remember if he said this or Toshio Suzuki said this, the producer... Miyazaki would always have an Earthsea book on his bedside table. It's almost one of the key texts that he refers to as in terms of storytelling and world building and moral landscapes. Well, and even it's like very close to this, he's to the release of this film, he's just made Howl's Moving Castle as well, Mm -hmm. which out of all the ones that you've mentioned that I've seen, it feels the closest to this. Well, exactly. We flash forward to the 2000s and after Spirited Away wins the Oscar is this huge success in Japan and puts Ghibli on the map, or at least in this upper echelons of filmmaking worldwide. It's interesting to note this phase they have after that, after making original or heavily adapted films based on Japanese 
like novels or manga for many years, they make three adaptations almost on the bounce. They make House of Castle based on the Diana Wynne-Jones book. They make Arietti based on Mary Norton's Borrower's books. And then this. And these are films based on books that have international followings and great expectations uh, already in the minds of the readers and the writers. But in the mid-2000s, Miyazaki tries again to get the, the rights to Earthsea. By this point, Ursula Le Guin has seen Spirit Away. She's seen My Neighbor Totoro and is very charmed by Miyazaki's work. And she even says, there's only one person who could do Earthsea justice on screen, and that is Heo Miyazaki. And in August 2005, Miyazaki and Toshio Suzuki go to visit Ursula Le Guin in, in the States, and they get the rights and her blessing. And For him to make it. Well... This is where the story gets a little tricky, (laughs) and we have many perspectives on this now, but they get the rights. Le Guin is excited that Miyazaki is going to make an Earthsea film, but the catch is, it's not Heo Miyazaki, it's Goro Miyazaki that's going to make this film. That's like some dastardly deed from a children's cartoon. It's like, ooh, I never said which Miyazaki would make it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so this is 2005, right after Howl's Moving Castle has come out, and Miyazaki is once again saying, no... I'm going into retirement. I'm not going to make any more films anymore. That's why I could not possibly do this. But there's also reasoning both from Miyazaki and Toshio Suzuki that Hayao Miyazaki has already made his Earthsea film in part throughout his entire career, that he couldn't find his own spin on that. So maybe this is the opportunity for a new generation to take take the reins. As we've said before, we've come across this maybe three or four times in this series where... They're always looking for this point where but a new is, generation... But it's this mid-2000s point mm-hmm. where they actually, they do take that to heart and that is where we do see those directors change over mm-hmm. and it's that kind of from this period to Windrises mm-hmm. and Marnie. That's yeah. where we actually see that change finally exactly. take place. F- finally, they're, they're really engaging with these younger filmmakers. So there's a sense that maybe a new director would take this on and... This may sound like nepotism, that his son gets the director's gig. It really isn't. There, there, there is, is no uh, greater detractor for Goro Miyazaki in the, in, in the studio Ghibli stable at that point than his dad, uh, who really doesn't want him to take on this project. But Toshio Suzuki fights for him. We should say something about who Goro Miyazaki is. Um, at this point, he's in his late 30s. I think he's 39 when the film comes out. So he's had a whole career before this. And his career was in landscape gardening and architecture. He studied uh, at the uh, University of Agriculture. He designs parks and public spaces. What? Exactly. (laughs) Nothing to do with animation. If you look at his IMDb uh, profile, this is literally his first film credit. He's done nothing before that. But Toshio Suzuki vouches for him because a few years previous they brought him into the Ghibli stable to design and then run the Ghibli Museum. Um, And he does such a good job of that with very little experience. Why not give him a film? Yeah, and obviously no one's allowed to take photos inside that museum, so we've never seen it. Never seen what it looks like. cannot say that it looks beautiful and wonderful, (laughs) and we'd like to go there. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But let's flash back very quickly to, to Ursula Le Guin once she hears this this comes down the down the pipe to her. She says, we were very disappointed and also anxious, but we were given the impression, indeed assured, that the project would be always subject to Mr. Hayo's approval. With this understanding, we made the agreement. Work on the film went on extremely rapidly after that, and we soon realized that Hayao Miyazaki was taking no part in making the film at all. 
But what? Toshio Suzuki, he comes to blows almost with Miyazaki over this. And in a press conference announcing the production of the film, people do ask, why are you giving this film this big project? It's almost like adapting J.R.R. Tolkien or, or Narnia, and you're giving it to somebody who's making their first film. And Suzuki, almost as a perfect gotcha response, quotes a Hayao Miyazaki movie, one we've talked about before, quotes Porco Rosso. He says, remember the scene in Porco Rosso where Porco and Theo have a conversation what makes a good pilot? Is it experience? No, it's inspiration. And Suzuki is confident that Goro has that inspiration and he'll pull it off. Yes, we've, we've, and we've definitely spoken about how inspiring Hayao Miyazaki can be to younger people. <laughs> exactly. And, well, well let's, go, let's get to that. So production starts. And we've spoken before about the chilly relationship that the older Miyazaki has with his protégés, specifically Hiramasu Yonabayashi in the past. Um, but this might be the chilliest, uh, you know, of, of all, Goro Miyazaki wrote uh, an extensive production blog during the making of Tales from Earthsea, which is um, archived and translated at various points around the internet. And there's an entry halfway through where he talks about his relationship with his dad. And the title of the blog post is, to me, Hayao Miyazaki gets zero marks as a father, full marks as a director. And there's a great, I mean, I'm going to say great, but actually quite heartbreaking quotes in here saying, my father was almost never at home. My father threw himself completely into his work. And that's why from my earliest awareness to this present day, I hardly ever had the chance to talk with him. This is the film. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll get to that, won't we? And that didn't really change during the making of Tales from Earthsea. They didn't speak during production. And in, in, in the documentary that's on the Blu-ray, they talk about this one exchange they have halfway through when, where Hayao Miyazaki calls Goro into his office to chew him out, saying, you have no idea what you're doing. How dare you take on this project? And Goro stands his ground. And that's the last thing they say to each other for a long time. And then the film's finished and there's a staff screening when it's finished and Hayao Miyazaki turns up and there's this chilly atmosphere of, oh, the, the father's here in the room to see the son's movie. What's he going to think? Will there be some sort of bridge mending going on here? No, there's no such thing. One account says that halfway through the, sca- the staff screening, uh, Miyazaki walks out. The, there are quotes that people quote saying that um, he left to have a cigarette halfway through the film but at that point Miyazaki says, it felt like I was sitting there for three hours. And at the end of the film, someone asked him what his opinion of the film was. And he said, I saw my own child. He hasn't become an adult. That's all. It's, a, it's good that he made one movie. With that, though, he should stop. That is absolutely and so, brutal. It's so similar to his response to Arietti, wasn't it? Like, yeah. you've done it. You failed. Great, you did it. <laughs> yeah, well done <laughs> for trying. Have a, have a sticker. And Goro didn't hear any of that. This is all hearsay at the time. In terms of actual direct contact from his dad, he gets nothing. And it's three whole days after the screening that he gets a note passed via another animator at the studio from his dad, which just simply says, the film was made in an honest manner and it was good. Well, actually, I, uh, I, I would agree with that. <laughs> made in an honest manner. Yeah. But then it finally comes out in Japan, July 2006, and it's a box office hit. It does really well uh, in a similar way to Arietti. It's the highest grossing Japanese film at the box office that year. And it lags behind only three Hollywood features in that sort of overall list. Um, very much of the period here, these three blockbuster movies, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, and The Da Vinci Code. Three perfect films. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I know you're a big fan of 
pot, potsy too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good one. Davy Jones is fun. Yeah. But reception in the press is mixed, uh, particularly in Japan, where the film tops the list at the equivalent of the Japanese Golden Raspberries for the worst film of the year, and Goro is given the Worst Director Award. Weirdly, Tom Hanks is given Worst Acting Award in that same year for The Da Vinci Code. It's a good dye job on his hair, though, I think. Yeah, uh, but he wouldn't really develop into that role until Inferno. That's where he's really nailing Robert Langdon. Exactly, yeah. But then it's perhaps most significant that when it comes around to the Japanese Academy Awards, Tales from Mercy is nominated for Best Animated Feature, one of those categories that Ghibli always takes home, and it loses to The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, directed by Mamoru Hosoda, who listeners may remember we talked about in the Howl's Moving Castle Mm. episode as an example of that new generation director who's brought in and then comes to blows with Miyazaki and has to leave because he felt that he was being shoehorned into making a Miyazaki cover version and he goes off, makes his own movie and beats Ghibli at their own, well, not their own game, but at the animation game that they're best in class at, supposedly. Once we run out of Ghibli's, we can do the Hoss Order. You did it. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. But then internationally, it fares pretty badly, really. It's the only Ghibli film to have a rotten consensus on Rotten Tomatoes. I know we don't really... That's how we judge films. It's not really the best metric for judging films, but for a general... You know, these are films otherwise... Ghibli films do get in the high 80s or 90s, 100% even Rotten Tomatoes. This is in the 40s. People are disappointed in this film. Um, And actually, it takes, I think, three or four years for it even to come out in the States because of some strange contractual licensing rights because... A TV company, I think it was Sci-Fi, had the Earthsea rights at the time, and they uh, they stopped it from being released until 2010. But by which point, Ponyo had come out at least, and you know Ghibli had moved f- much well, further Arietti on from had there. Smashed the box yeah. office by then, so it must have felt strange to come out that late. Mm. Maybe that would explain why it was received so badly mm. over there. But I'd like to give the last word to Ursula Le Guin. She is such an important writer both for adults and for children in sci-fi and fantasy, and she's a great blogger as well. She really, in the, many, in the way many fantasy and sci-fi writers did, she embraced the medium, even though she was quite advanced in age at that point. And she has a fantastic blog post about her response to this seeing this film that details the entire production history from that meeting with Suzuki and Miyazaki to her, her, her reheated thoughts later on. And she has this really scathing, in-depth review of the film that details all her issues with it, specifically the changes and fudges that it makes in adaptation. And here's a a bunch of quotes I'm going to rattle through. Much of it was beautiful, but many corners were cut. In the animation of this quickly made film, it does not have the delicate accuracy of Totoro or the powerful and splendid richness of detail of Spirited Away. The imagery is effective, but often conventional. Much of it was exciting, but the excitement was maintained by violence to a degree that I find deeply untrue to the spirit of the books. Much of it was, I thought, incoherent. The filmmakers treated these books as minds for names and a few concepts, taking bits and pieces out of context and replacing the stories with an entirely different plot, lacking in coherence and consistency. I wonder at the disrespect shown not only to the books, but to their readers. Ouch. And they're just some highlights from this post. She really digs in deep. Okay, well, we'll put that in the notes of the episode. Such a read. Mm. But that is Tales from Earthsea. Hopefully that gives some context to this controversy when it comes out. 
And I wonder whether it still feels like this watching it now, especially on the journey you've been on, Jake. Yeah, for the first timer. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Jake, we've just gone through this tortured reputation and production process, but the film itself, how does it pan out for you? Yes, well, suffice to say, Michael, your explanation of the history of this film although complicated, was perhaps easier to follow than this film. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, however, I'm going to start and just get it off my chest. I like this film. You I really, like I enjoyed it. Tales from Earthsea. Mm-hmm. I, I had a fun time watching it. Uh-huh. Uh, it is not a masterpiece, and we'll get into why. Um, but I, I think perhaps people take it a little too seriously. But I can appreciate why if you like grew up watching these Ghibli films or like you were already a fan and you watch them every two years or something as they come out and obviously there's a humongous amount of hype and then this drops on your lap, I can see why the disappointment at the time was so huge. Mm-hmm. However, being lucky enough to view it outside of that prism, uh, I think really benefits the film. Right. Okay, so what strikes you then as being a good aspects of it? Because okay. some people have, have nothing is, good to say about this film. It is film. stunning to right. look at. It is beautiful. We talked about um, in when Marnie was there about these these kind of muddy skies that mm-hmm. we've not seen before, and how that breaks up that lovely crisp uh, Ghibli blue that we've spoken about, which is great. The Marnie sky is great. This is going for this huge Tolkien-esque fantasy and the scale of it in the design nails that, I think. I th- that You see these landscapes over cities and hills and uh, 
ships that are moored in the desert and you get this enormous sense of scale and they're beautifully painted. Some of the skies are wonderful. Mm-hmm. I, I genuinely think this is one of their best looking films. Mm. Maybe when you don't look at the people. <laughs> well, this is the thing. Uh, Goro Miyazaki, despite not being an animator beforehand, he was a doodler. He, uh, he drew a lot and he did all the storyboards himself for this film. And I think that some of those... Images are very strong, but yeah, as you say, the character design, I think, really looks like off-model Ghibli, particularly if you see certain characters look almost like shadows of characters you'd see in Princess Mononoke or Spirited Away. They don't just, they don't look quite right, and they're not perhaps animated to the to the polish that you'd, you know, yeah. you'd expect, especially with Howl's Moving Castle, which is a film that maybe we agreed on was quite flawed, but one thing we agreed on was how polished it was mm. yeah, using yeah. CGI to slightly... Uh, but managing to mesh those ideas. Mm-hmm. We, so Princess Mononoke, I, I said that they hadn't quite figured out at the time that it almost looked like the characters were sitting on top of the backgrounds exactly. at points. Now, this is over 10 years later, and whilst Howls has solved that issue, occasionally that's still coming up here, even though we're even further along. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it just seems like there was that inability to mesh that uh, passion for detail and construction for the landscapes and the world with the character. But And then also with the actual storytelling? Yeah. How does that work for you? Because this is... We, we've watched all these films to date now. This is the most traditional fantasy movie in the Western sense as we understand it. What, for sure, yeah. Um, I was actually quite swept up in it uh, mm-hmm. early on because... Uh, it tells you quite quickly that this is not the Ghibli film that you're expecting. Right. This is is not the Ghibli you're looking for. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because the the score comes in, it's huge, it's Howard Shaw-esque, it's those enormous moments that are weirdly in the Red Turtle score, but in this true fantasy setting, we are opening with two dragons fighting, there's blood, there's chaos, there's ships, there's people dying. It's massive. And I actually really liked that mm-hmm. because it wasn't like uh, Goro was trying to trick us into thinking, here's me doing my dad's type of film. It was, we're straight in with something new. Well, of course, you also have a scene very early on where a son murders their dad. Yeah. Which must, I mean, it's incredibly symbolic. <laughs> Obviously so, would you say? Yeah. Um, and perhaps doesn't... Uh, pay off enough in the plot. At all? Yeah. Um, <laughs> who's to say why this guy might want to put in a scene that involves that action that uh, doesn't, isn't really essential for the plot? But the plot is something, isn't it? We, we said the, before about... the plot is something, Michael. <laughs> it's certainly not nothing, but we have this adaptation of a long-running series. These, the, the, It's not Lord of the Rings-length books or Game of the Thrones-length books. The, the individual Ursula Le Guin books are probably 150, 200 pages, so they're not epics, but the world they suggest is huge. The series is written over a period of 40 years. Um, you have novels, you have short stories, you have the world of Earthsea side narratives and so on. This adaptation fudges it all together. Yeah, it's, as you say, the, the books aren't massive mm-hmm. and... So we've seen successful fantasy adaptations of books that are around the length that Earthsea is that manage to build a sense of the world, uh, make it feel expansive whilst telling this small story in it, but you still get a sense of what everything is like. 
and we don't get that here. It's so condensed, you feel like we're missing loads of things, like scenes have been completely cut out at points. Um, compared to something like Kiki's Delivery Service, which presents us with this completely magical world, we can imagine how it drifts off into the distance, and we tell this central story to it that involves magic, and we get exactly what we need from the story. Well, that really highlights an aspect of the adaptation that Ursula Le Guin was really, really confused by. She said that her idea for the perfect film adaptation of Earthsea, and she was very prepared to do this for no one but Hayao Miyazaki, was say, there are gaps in the narrative between the books. Make any film you want about these characters in between my books. You have carte blanche, add to the world. And that doesn't happen. And what Go Miyazaki does instead is takes, I think, the majority of the plot from the third novel in the series, but with incidents and characters from the first, second, and fourth, all fudged together, and then takes the title, at least the English language title, is from a short story collection that came out much later, Tales from Earthsea, to the point where much of that blog post I mentioned is Ursula Guin just being so confused, saying she recognizes the characters, but they're not acting or speaking or doing anything she recognizes. Yeah. To the point where something that happens to one character in one book happens to another character in this film. Yeah. Which is bizarre, but then... We haven't read the books, so we don't have that association, we but we can still tell that something's not on here, right? And, well, it's interesting you mentioned that she gave them the opportunity to use this world, and that's so often the complaint with uh, these stories that take place within the Star Wars universe. Like, mm -hmm. Why do we need a solo film, mm -hmm. which is only going to detract from a character or a story that we love, when... There is a whole universe out there filled with other characters to use that we haven't seen that we can profile or other adventures to tell. And that was the chance to do them. And instead we end up with this uh, kind of messy, unsure uh, version of something that's only going to annoy people. Yes, and re-watching it, I really did not like this film when I first saw it. It was when I was still at university, two years into university, but it was one of the first Ghibli films I saw at the cinema. And we got it in the UK maybe two years, three years before the States. So it was actually quite novel. Rewatching it, it's still very flawed. And I don't think I would go so far as to say I like this. There's some aspects I think really could have been developed into something better. Particularly, I do quite like Aaron's conflict for, the, for at least the second half of the film, this sense that there's this great deep guilt and shame and fear of death that is motivating him, although I don't think the motiv what it motivates him towards is particularly very consistent or logical, like killing his father. Um, it's very dark, and it does have a lot of action sequences, but this is not what I come to Ghibli for. Yeah, and as like, the, the philosophy that it gets into in this second half of the film is trying to be this quite inspiring look at living life in the face of death and mm -hmm. accepting that fate and seeing it as freedom. Uh, and it doesn't quite land it on the head that um, other, other Ghibli films have in fact done the same thing. Mm -hmm. And we're actually come out of it genuinely feeling that inspiration that they're trying to get to. Um, and it doesn't hit, but I'm glad it's there and that it's trying for that kind of thing. Um, but it seems to be that plot lines come and go, characters come and go. There are huge central sequences in which a character who is near the events of that scene is not engaged in it at all, is just literally placed on the sideline 
the key event happens and then we go back to them and we haven't seen them do a thing. They've just stood in the same spot. And it's a, probably an hour until the plot even locks onto a structure or direction. And in order to do that, it introduces something that Ghibli does not tend to have, which is a villain, an antagonist. Mm. And it has two in this case. It has the the, the, the slave trader uh, sort of henchman, but also Lord Cobb, who is seen as this great big bad and this great big bad who can be resolved with being killed, yeah. which is something that also Ursula Le Guin rejects. It's not what the the, the moral landscape and mythology of Earthsea supports either. Yeah. But you can really see in the big themes of the balance in particular, this natural order of magic and mythical creatures the and nature. Of names and, and one's names. identity. It's all there in Spirited Away. It's there in Princess Mononoke. You can really see how Miyazaki, the f- older Miyazaki, had taken so much inspiration from this to make great art. Mm. And I don't think that's here. I don't think this film needed to be made, really. Yeah, that's true. And I think it is. it also suffers from the weight that comes with it, not only from being a Studio Ghibli thing, but obviously coming from uh, Ursula Le Guin as well. If you try and remove it from that, I still had a good time watching it because I don't have any of that context until this conversation that we're having here, really. And so because I didn't have that, I was able to just enjoy it for what it was whilst I was watching it. I'm curious what my second viewing will be, Mm -hmm. uh, knowing all of that now. But I think although the violence is not something that she agreed with or is naturally part of Ghibli, the, the... Action sequences are really impressive. The momentum in them, the staging in them is quite intense and exciting. Uh, And in the final 10 minutes, there is a a showdown that involves someone then turning, transforming into a dragon. And I couldn't tell you why it was happening, but (laughs) I was so engaged with how it was happening that I didn't care. And it's when the film gets bogged down in its plot and its politics and its philosophy that's all a bit edgelord uh, that I felt annoyed by the film. And it's when it was able to just shift off and go high fantasy and these things are happening and just accept it that I was more okay with it. Plus it looked great. I, I really think it looks amazing. Maybe it works best as an adaptation, as you say, as people said with certain Harry Potter films, as a slideshow of great moments rather than being true to the spirit or true to the actual narrative world of the books that it's being inspired by. Yeah, I, mean, I, I find it fascinating, though, that this is the second Ghibli film in a row that ends with a whole plot line being resolved by a transformation. <laughs> <laughs> so House Moving Castle has the, yeah. the bouncing scarecrow guy turns into a prince. In this, we have that female character that's just been sort of meandering around the plot for the whole film turns into dragon. Yeah. Because why not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why not? Why do you think people hate it, Jake? Uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> um, because of everything you told me in the first 15 minutes of this you can episode. Understand, can you understand why this might have had this reputation, maybe? Yeah. I, I don't think this film is lovely. Uh-huh. And I think that's a as much as that that might sound saccharine, that's a reason that people love Ghibli as well. And that's the reason that I will revisit the ones that I do is because I want to stay in that world and it's got people that I love in it. I mean, I have a trouble remembering the names of the characters in this film, let alone wanting to spend much more time with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a, a big reason. 
You don't want to spend some time with Sparrowhawk? Uh, oh, a lovely Sparrowhawk and, and all those other memorable characters. Jake, this sounds like you almost like this more than some of the films we've discussed. <laughs> and I wonder, we don't do this every episode, but in the next section where you make me put this on the leaderboard, I want to know where this comes on Jacob's ladder. All right, fine. Yeah, it's, we'll do it. We wouldn't normally, but we'll give the listeners a treat. Okay, so uh, before we delve into my uh, my own list, let's quickly cover the leaderboard for this episode. Uh, so to recap from our previous one, Michael, this is where this list currently stands for you. Uh, the Cat Returns is at the bottom. Then we have got Arietti, Howl's Moving Castle, When Marnie Was There, Pompoco, Only Yesterday, Ponyo, Spirited Away, Porco Rosso, Kiki's Delivery Service, Princess Mononoke, Grave of the Fireflies, My Neighbor Totoro, and Forever in Our Hearts, Whisper. Indeed, Whisper of the Hearts, always going to be top, I think. I've just made you read out the entirety of the leaderboard. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sorry. I think this has to be bottom of the table for me. In that little clutch of films, which is now forming with Arietti and the Cat Returns, of these little films that I don't think I ever really will ever have cause to go and rewatch, And this, we said that Arietti felt like a Miyazaki cover version, and this felt like Goro Miyazaki working in his father's shadow, trying to find something to say and not really finding what, what he could say. I disagree. I don't feel like it is a cover version, and that's why it's more impressive. But then in the parts where it's not a cover version, it has stuff that I just don't come to Studio Ghibli for. It comes... The the epic fantasy elements I find done better. I find done better in Japanese RPGs and video games. They take these Lord of the Rings, Dungeons & Dragons fantasy inspirations and make completely new stories out of them. I think this is struggling with the weight of the adaptation to really find its own take on it all and therefore is frustrating its own way. I do find it fascinating to talk about. It's got the best story behind it. But not to spoil it, I think that Goro Miyazaki has better films in him, as we'll get to. But Jake, where does this come for you? Is this top five? Uh, oh, this is number one for sure. <laughs> um, just, to, just to recap, uh, my current list is uh, The Cat Returns and Arietti at the bottom, same as you. And then it's all change above that. Uh, Howl's Moving Castle, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away, Pompoko, Whisper of the Heart, Ponyo, Grave of the Fireflies, and my top three are Only Yesterday, My Neighbor Totoro, and Porco Rosso. Mm-hmm. And I'll put Tales from Earthsea at number 10. Uh, so just slotting in where Howl's Moving Castle is below Princess Mononoke. I notice I've got this this trio of the big epic ones. You don't uh, like the big epic ones, Jake. Yeah, I don't. Uh, really but we should say the Howl's right Moving Castle's placement on both our rankings is possibly the most controversial so far. That film has strong fans, and they're not going to be happy with you putting this above Howl's Moving Castle. Well, as we said at the start of this episode, we're not known for our, our heated takes, really, uh, and maybe we won't get ever any hotter than uh, Tales from Earthsea is better than House Moving Castle. But I should, we, maybe we should leave it there. <laughs> Let's leave it there. Well, we hope you've enjoyed your time with the Ghibli Tech. Next week, we're talking about Castle in the Sky. Maybe 
<laughs> on that bombshell where you say you don't like the epic adventures, Jake, Cast in the Sky is one of those epic adventures. Oh, gosh. No, so it's going to be plummeting. Well, I sh- oh, I'm going to quit the podcast. <laughs> no more of these, please. <laughs> but I thought what we should do is, after Goro Miyazaki's first Ghibli film, go back and see a prime example of Hayao Miyazaki's early adventures. And this is actually the very first Studio Ghibli film as branded. I am very excited. Well, until then, you can follow Jake on Twitter at Jake H. Cunningham. And you can follow Michael at Michael J. Leader. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Moe, and Lister Russell makes us sound good. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. That's me. Hi everyone, thank you for sticking with us through the credits. So we spoke earlier about Hayao Miyazaki taking much from Earthsea over the years and planting those seeds of inspiration throughout his life's work. One of those works is a manga he made in the early 1980s called The Journey of Shuna. Now I mention this here because Miyazaki told Toshio Suzuki that the only way to adapt Earthsea would be to use this manga that he made as a template. And so Goro Miyazaki did use it in the process of developing the eventual film. That makes this an odd, subtle double adaptation of both Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea and his father's own manga. However, I've not read it. It's only available in Japanese. It's not been translated into English, but I'd love to know more about this connection. Has anyone out there read it? If so, let us know if you have. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.